little bit about metta and wisdom and um, some hope to be a little reassuring in here and something about the mechanics of how the practice works as I've uh, seen it or worked with it. On the way over here, between sort of my final um, storing of this talk in a, uh, in a USB drive and printing it out, I walked up the road and there was a shooting star that seemed to just brush the tops of the trees. And it just felt so uh, poignant, such a teaching, that flash across the sky. Just so um, beautiful to see. So just before, and before I came to this retreat, I was reading an obituary in the New York Times of an astronomer named Jeffrey Burbage, who died on January 26th having proved in 1957 against great opposition that everything that makes up everything in the world, including our bodies, all comes from the stars. Um, So the uh, New York Times obit writer dared to say, we are stardust. Um, Which, when I read it, I thought, why didn't anybody tell me that? Why wasn't that a part of my education? But rising to meet that was also a sense that this has been much more of a kind of intuitive sense of belonging in the universe that has been, uh, I think, the gift of meditation practice or just the gift of nature expressing itself enhanced with Buddhist practice, including metta. So Joni Mitchell was right. And somewhere in the obit I learned there was a part of that song that I'd never understood. Billion-year-old carbon is part of one of her lyrics. But it had just run through my mind like kind of till now. So I learned something new. But so a lot of what makes our bones strong is that. Um, And it's not just a hippie notion. It's hard science. (laughs) Don't forget. So there are many ways of knowing this sense of belonging uh, and being part of things, whether it's sometimes through science, through poetry, through intuition, and through, I feel, also this metta practice that we're doing here. And I think I'm going to dare to call it love because I want to um, do that because it also fits with some of the practices in other traditions where it's called love, kindness, love, inclusion, softening, And I'm a little bit going to follow the structure of the four phrases. So um, this first part of the talk has to do a little bit with having a sense of safety or a sense of belonging. Richard Dawkins says, the fact of our own existence is almost too surprising to bear. So is the fact that we're surrounded by a rich ecosystem of animals that more or less closely resemble us, plants that resemble us a little less and on which we ultimately depend for nourishment and by bacteria that resemble our remoter ancestors and to which we shall all return and decay when our time is past. It is no accident that we see stars in the sky. There may be universes without stars in them, but nobody's observing those universes because entities capable of observing anything cannot evolve without stars. 
meaning that um, stars such as our sun provide the energy for our life. They provide, they, you know, do the plants, then the plants are food, and even animals are eaten by plants. I mean, plants are eaten by animals. <laughs> A few animals are eaten by plants, right? But anyway, like that. We're surrounded by these en endless, endless, beautiful forms of life, and it's not an accident, and it's all connected. And we're more connected even to the stars. We depend on everything that we see. So the question might come is, where does this feeling arise that we do not belong? How can this be? How can we feel at times so separate? Where did that sense of separation come from? Krishnamurti describes it saying, one is everlastingly comparing oneself with another. Comparing oneself with what one is and with what one should be, with someone who's more fortunate. Our education is based on it, so is our culture. There's an everlasting struggle to be something other than what one is. Then he goes on and talks about how competitiveness, ruthlessness, and cruelty all are based on this sense of separation, which he feels is um, due to not understanding the nature of our thinking or not understanding the nature of our mind clearly. That this sense of separation is what has led to wars and all the human misery uh, of the world that Gina was describing last night, and especially at the beginning of her talk, very eloquently. And that really we're all engaged with here. So, as to why we feel this way, the Buddha gave no answer when people would say, Why or where did this, where did this suffering begin? That was one of the questions on which he remained silent. He was not uh, very forthcoming on whys and wherefores, or you know, when did the universe start, or uh, Buddha, dear one, where will you be after you die? All of those things, he was silent. However, he wasn't completely silent all the time. He also described um, our predicament, and he gave us instructions for how to resolve uh, the problem of human suffering in ourselves and also outside of ourselves. So actually, the first teaching he ever gave was that there is suffering. And um, I think by now, in this time of the retreat, we've all verified this. <laughs> There's some <laughs> suffering. And um, all of this stuff that we're encountering uh, in our practice is actually the teaching. So um, it's perhaps interesting also not to feel separate from that, not to feel separate from embodying the Buddhist teachings already um, and understanding that this is what uh, the Buddha was des describing and discussing. All of our predicaments are part of the teaching. As the uh, next part of his teaching was also how there are times in each of our practice when we may feel that the metta brings a little bit of resolution to the predicament, when we kind of find our way, whether it's coming back to uh, offering some kindness to ourself, softening into how we feel, uh, being willing to say the phrase one more time. So with this practice, we also see the second part of the liberating teachings of the Buddha, for which he gave many, many different kinds of instructions. This is just one. But we begin to see how we can free ourselves from a sense of separation from ourselves and from other beings, and ultimately from all that lives through this inclusive practice, through this moment-to-moment -moment training. Very simple. 
And let us just say that as we wish well for ourselves, as we wish for ourselves to be safe, uh, happy, healthy, and at ease, that we're training in being with what is fragile, uh, what is imperfect, and what is real in us. We also see the truth that we want to be free of suffering. Like, if you start to think about this as an abstraction, it may not work. You might wonder if you really want to be free from suffering, but you might notice here day to day that when you're suffering, you don't really don't like it, right? Nobody likes it. <laughs> it's a very deep truth that we're wiggling and wriggling all the time to try to like figure it out when we're in an uncomfortable place, either physically or mentally. So when the Buddha says, or when the metta practice says, all beings want to be happy, just look at yourself and see if that's true. See how you respond to um, pleasure, pain, and see um, how the mind, when it gets so entangled, um, begins to suffer, and how it is always trying to sort of find its way out. So this, too, is wisdom. This, too, is something to be recognized, um, that it's growing in your practice, that it's present in your practice, not to overlook, but to appreciate um, really what you're knowing and um, understand it and recognize it when you see it. So um, as to questions that, um, about suffering and the end of suffering, uh, Sayada Upandita said uh, when he came here in 1984, if you do this work, then you will be the answer. Um, so there are certain things not to give answers to, that the work is in each of us, that the path is in each of us, but that we can trust that uh, those who've gone before us are not fibbing or not kidding, and we can see sort of moment by moment how it can be true. So this metta or love is a method, a method to disentangle uh, from those obstacles within us that we've all felt. It's also a response to something very deep within us, uh, a yearning that we feel for completion and for wholeness that is so uh, deep and beyond words. And I think that in a way, everyone in this room uh, before, before words knows what this is. This is a poem by a friend of ours, Ken McLeod, who's a uh, Tibetan-style teacher in Los Angeles who sort of helps reframes certain meditation practices. He's trying to uh, have things in Western terms, so he's mixing Dante and Mahamudra in this. Here in this forest, in the middle of my life, trees close in, a darkening path awaits my feet. Much have I learned, yet more I seek to know. What sense does it make for me to turn back now? My heart still longs for what no words will serve. What is there to do but trust this yearning and go on? What is there to do but trust this yearning and go on? And as we're here, we've accepted and trusted that something inside us recognizes that kindness uh, is a path. Kindness is a path to wholeness. I'd like to expand that kindness and with some of the awesome sound of love to say that this uh, love may also be a word for what we feel uh, in silence, for what we feel in the presence of another person, for what we feel when we see someone crying, for what we feel when we're together in an interview, facing one another, trying to talk, trying to connect. 
love and wisdom are maybe said to be like the two lights by which absolute truth shines into our relative and human world. So it is not less than wisdom and it's also a part of wisdom. There's no real uh, true wisdom that doesn't have love as an understanding. And it's kind of a love maybe we can say beyond love, beyond conventional ideas of love. So on a more practical level or a sort of you know, sort of mundane or ordinary level for most of you, I, we feel that um, the practice is starting to come together at least sometimes, that there's been a little sense of um, a little bit more about being able to do it or feel some momentum. And it's kind of uh, fun to think about how metta itself is a kind of cohesiveness. It's spoken of as a kind of liquid that helps like dryness, of the dryness of hatred and anger that's kind of dried out the earth of our heart or something, kind of bring it together and make it stick together, helps make people stick together, brings the mind a little bit together. And as we've gathered our attention around each phrase and sort of felt that kind of melting quality at times of each phrase when we can really wish well for ourselves and wish well for someone else, um, we know we can feel our mind coming together a little bit a little bit of ease. There are still waves, but maybe more of a sense of understanding of those waves or forgiveness for ourself. Occasionally, some forgiveness, some softness, a little more generosity in how we respond to ourselves when we find ourselves a little stuck in the practice. For some, um, there's even just, it will express itself differently in each one. Some people said today they had just a sense of simple trust in being here in the rhythms of the practice and the place. People who have very unconventional ways of doing this practice sometimes just feel that it's right to be here. Getting used to being here for people who haven't been here before. And sometimes finding some sense of trust or resonance with uh, allowing a release of some feelings that may have been long held back or incompletely felt both beautiful feelings or also painful feelings, um, letting those move through us. So as we see our practice grow, um, we gain some respect for little by littleness of it, the momentariness of it, but also trust in a kind of cause and effect in our own efforts that actually, um, it's sort of our mind can influence itself, that the mind can teach itself just through these simple repetitions the simplicity of this method and its power. Uh, very simple, it doesn't have to be owned by any school of thought. Um, and yet also, I just want to say that we're in a tremendous context here of one another, of teachings, of understandings, of texts, and of those who have gone before us, those who will come after us. So it's, um, it's not, you know, our mind might be encompassing many factors. Um, We've entrusted ourselves to doing this um, to our degree, faith enough to try it, which as one yogi said this morning was quite a lot already, faith to keep going, to keep saying those phrases as someone else said, seeing many things we do not like in ourselves, faith to continue, yet a third said this, faith to face those things inside ourselves. Starting to recognize, this is another wisdom piece, that metta will bring up everything that isn't metta. <laughs> it's like turning on a flashlight and suddenly seeing a lot of things in the, sh the shadows that they throw. I might 
talk a little bit more about that. But sort of each time something comes up in your mind that feels so anti-meta, it's actually the power of meta that throws it into such stark relief. So trusting that as well as being part of the process and see um, if more and more we can include that and not separate from it when it happens. Not to feel that we're failing, but rather that we might be succeeding more than we allow ourselves to know. And this capacity to face those things inside us and accept them and include them in our practice is kind of what can be, uh, begin to be a felt sense of having a refuge in kindness or in goodness or in something we don't even know in those kind of surprising moments where we find ourselves responding a little differently or feeling like it's okay to be who I am for the first time. Um, surprising we should be such delicate mechanisms that that can feel special, you know? okay to be who I am or what I am, or even in a moment it's okay to be as I am, moment to moment. Um, May the practice bring this gift to each of us. Small things, like um, after years of practice, I had a dinner party before we came here, the night before I started to teach. Had a bunch of people over, Um, I cooked. And I felt that normally if I cook for people, I sometimes hide behind being really busy around providing the food so that It's like I feel like I'm doing something and giving something, but I don't have to face people quite the same way. But I had kind of uh, got out from behind that. And also, in trapping myself in being of service, then I don't have as much fun. I just get anxious and stuff like that. So this time, a little different. (laughs) Anxious, resentful, and, you know, everyone else is at the party, and I'm a slave. You know, I mean, it's just a mess. But (laughs) this time, I actually had some fun. I was relaxed. I wasn't like so hypervigilant about the conversation. I was able not to be stuck to the person that I'm most annoyed by. I like kind of left her with some other people, you know? Because <laughs> I didn't feel so guilty about, I mean, I, we had to invite her kind of. She's someone, you know? <laughs> She's a lonely person. She, her husband died, so she has to come over, you know? You have to kind of bring her around. So, but we, we brought a bunch of people that she might be able to talk to, and I didn't have to stay with her. So that's a good, because I didn't feel so bad about like, being annoyed. So it was like, okay, so I'm annoyed. I don't have to be with her. And then I didn't also feel concerned that all the, con- the conversations on the other side of the room had to be better than the one that I was in. You know, that I could hear little bits of things that were interesting, and, but they didn't really take me away from the people I was with because I learned a little bit more about how to focus on the people that I'm with and actually be more interested in them no matter who they are, um, as long as they're not super annoying. <laughs> well, <laughs> but... And afterwards, I thought, well, well, I don't know why this was able to be so much easier, you know, just in a very ordinary sense, um, a simple kind of freedom of heart within being a person and within having a life. Um, and I really think it's from, it's really from practicing. Someone else in an interview talked about how um, one day she saw someone that she didn't really like very much, but she knew the person wasn't well physically, and she actually stopped the car to ask how she was doing. And she said, that's also from metta practice. Uh, from compassion, from a sense of kindness, that it's not so much, that you know, sort of these barriers in the world that sometimes can feel so solid begin to feel a little bit more flexible. A sense of you can be you and I can be me and maybe this greater connection of the universe uh, connects us beyond the need to overconnect overtly and also allows us to disconnect without uh, feeling like the loss is going to be ultimate. Um, 
So it makes it easier to say both yes and no to other people. I know this is a question that a lot of us have about uh, what happens, can, does kindness make us into a doormat? And I think, no, I think it allows us also to see the integrity of other people and the integrity of ourselves and how we can come together without losing it and how we can also separate sometimes without losing it. That's a very high, high bar. So I'm going to speak a little uh, bit uh, technically and teachingly about some of the mechanics of metta and some of the classical understandings of metta as I've understood them. Um, and I want to bring into focus here how um, we've talked a lot about the creativity and the systematicness of this, like how those two things are interwoven to keep the practice fresh, but also to sort of keep it on track to give us something to come back to. And I just want to remind us all that this is a training. So um, although we're building on a kind of innate goodness in our human selves, like you know, as someone said today, um, we have to be good people if we're here doing this. And I think that's true, but it doesn't make us better necessarily than other people, but it is a goodness in us that makes us do this and go through this. Um, some of us really want to offer our, be able to offer our love to other people better. Um, and I'll come around to that a little bit more. But in this need for different kinds of training of our minds, uh, we're not unique among species. A friend of mine at the same dinner party was talking about how when she used to live in DC, there was an owl's nest behind her house. And at night, she could hear the mother owl teaching the little baby owls how to fly around in the dark. So other kinds of beings also teach each other things and learn things, have, have a need to learn. Um, we're just a being like others. We have to go to school, and then we have to do things like this. Um, high skill of the simple thing <laughs> to meet ourselves where we are. Uh, why is that so weird? Anyway, it is weird. So um, as, we've, as we've been chanting in the evenings, there's this um, thing about awera hotu, avyapaja hotu, aniga hotu, suki atanam pariharantu. And as I practiced, uh, I, I varied my phrases, I varied my benefactors. I did quite a lot of playing around when I practiced metta to keep myself from being bored, a very monkeyish mind. Um, I probably changed things around more than is recommended. Um, but for a while, I did the phrases all in Pali um, and grew to really appreciate them. Grew to appreciate that avera means uh, the word, this ah before each. Uh, of the other parts of the Pali word means without, ah. Uh, same as in our language, amoral or atheistic, ah. Uh, awera means without an enemy. So may you be without an enemy. Um, may you not have any, we used to try to teach it as be free of enmity, but it was too hard to say. <laughs> enmity. But it's also um, in the Tibetan teachings, the ah of relief when you're released from suffering. So when you don't have an enemy, you feel very relieved. And ah, um, this specific ah, the root syllable or mantra, is the syllable of something that is not truly existing. So it's a deep teaching about seeing through the appearances of this world and the appearances of our mind. And there's a trust in this thing that if in the negative formulation of the phrases, if you may be free of something, then there is an original goodness or freedom that comes out that isn't spoken as much, but 
it really affirms the sense in Buddhism that um, the problematicness or the sense of separation is superficial compared with the reality of, of our interconnection. So that um, these concepts or thoughts about ourselves as being separate are not tr fundamentally true, as Gina said last night, like we're not really truly separate. We kind of believe that we are, and in our fractured wavelength, we might see that we are, but in fact, we're not. So going to sort of a sense of reality, when we remove uh, that which is disturbing, then we, the mind kind of automatically recognizes what's true. So may I be safe, may I be without an enemy. And I like it that this is the first phrase because we all need to feel this as a person. It's a very primordial and primitive need. And it may be the first need that an infant has when it comes out is to feel safe psychologically. Now, in a sense, um, all of us have survived here because a certain amount of care was given to us. And all of us actually are, became born because uh, two people came together in some form or other. Um, so that's a kind of an interesting thing, that connection is our origin. And at least some degree of physical care had to be given to us um, in order for us to be here. Father Thomas Keating says, We're born predisposed to seek security and survival. Base our definitions of happiness on the gratifications of such needs, leading to lives in search of power, control, esteem, sensual pleasure. These primitive emotional programs for happiness obstruct what may be the ultimate opportunity of fulfilling our human capacity through access to spiritual levels of our being. We find evidence for this potential in sages and saints who understand the rational capacities of the brain to open itself to love in the fullest sense and discover levels of happiness, peace, freedom, and joy. But this isn't limited to mystics or uh, people who've become statues. This is also what we're doing here. So on one level, um, what we're learning to satisfy in metta is a kind of higher order um, understanding about love. But also, with having this sense of safety be the first phrase, it also brings up ways in which uh, all of us may be wounded and wounded most of all, I think, in our sense of being able to trust. And um, as these phrases work their way through our being, I think we begin to learn to trust in something, whether it's trusting in the phrase or trusting in the context in which the phrase is offered. I know a Tibetan teacher who said that his main enlightenment experience was in front of a painting of a teacher from the 15th century, Shantideva. And he said when he looked at the painting, he understood that this teacher really uh, was telling the truth, that the Buddhist path really works. And with that, he just was able to um, just release his mind into what the teaching actually was. When I hear that person to speak, I think of, well, how nice that in that society, um, things were handed down in a way that people had that incredible amount of confidence in the lineage and in all of the representations of the lineage that they could look at a painting and just be uh, freed. They could look at a painting of someone uh, that people said was about freedom and learn to be freed by that painting. But in a sense, in our own sort of floundering way here, by wishing ourselves to be safe, 
and by wishing um, all of this for one another, we begin to learn to trust. We're not really doing this alone. Um, and in fact, we're in relationship with the tradition that is profoundly and deeply healing, that has the wish for each of us to be healed. That sometimes if we take refuge in a sense of this, in a sense that that's what the teaching is here for, it's actually here for us to learn and to see and to discover the sense of freedom from suffering. It's profoundly moving. The precepts that we took, creating a kind of field of safety, um, the way that we treat one another, the way the food is made, all of that. Um, so may we feel safe here to explore and to soothe our fundamental wounds, our fundamental fears. On that note, I would like to say it's fine if you want to cry in the hall anytime. As we begin to sort of lay these phrases across our minds, across our souls or our hearts, we start to see the goodness in them. Um, we start to see the goodness in ourselves. And it's not to say that this metta practice is the only way of healing these fundamental wounds of trust or these instabilities or fears. Um, there are many, many experiences in our life that can help us this way. Um, even a certain person giving us a certain hug at a certain time and telling us that we're wonderful once in a while, that can really strike a place in us that really, really needs to see that. Um, so we hold that for one another, even in the silence. We hold that sense of appreciating one another and knowing that everything that we're going through does not define us as being unworthy, does not define us as being damaged, uh, does not define us as being the way that we perceive ourselves, divided and separated. To recognize better some of the innate goodness uh, in humanity, uh, I've been studying uh, some of the recent research about compassion and love, and scientists have started to look into goodness and cooperation as much as ecologists say that, you know, the it's not just nature red in tooth and claw anymore. It's like a huge matrix of everything, including the stars. So uh, they're also starting to study in a very serious way. Why would a human being tip a waitress in a town that they're just about to leave, that they know they'll never come back to? <laughs> That's a matter for serious head scratching. <laughs> that we'll do things at an actual cost to ourselves to make someone else happy. Um, studying our innate capacity for laughter or the, the very, very sensitive communication that we have with one another's faces, that we learn to understand uh, compassion, that we can see joy in each other, that we can also kind of recognize when a certain person might become a threat and move away from them. They've studied um, grad students who tend to be the subjects of all, or undergrads who tend to be the subjects of all scientific psychological studies can recognize they put their arm through a hole and someone else uh, touches their arm trying to communicate certain things like uh, distaste or love or affection or reassurance. And through a 17 second touch on the arm, most people can accurately identify compassion and caring and they can also 
I accurately identify hostility too. So let's not be too like disdainful also of those emotions that we've internalized because they're actually very important signals in a form of language that um, we've learned to uh, understand and to connect with each other and also to know when disconnection needs to happen. They've also studied how profoundly the uh, emotions connect through our entire body. And this is something that we know kind of just by being alive, but you know, science now understands that the lungs and the breath and the tear ducts and the stomach and the facial muscles and the saliva and the lips and the brain and the intestines are all wired together, producing a complete response. Right? <laughs> I know, I know. So when we say the emotions are embodied, they are, they're embodied. And um, they've discovered this thing that's called the vagus nerve that really is part of, uh, that connects all of this stuff together. Um, and that we use to make sure that we behave compassionately. Now this gets too technical, so I'm not going to go into the compassion and the vagus nerve, but let's just all say that we have a compassionate nerve in there. Um, otherwise the talk will become just, I felt like I could give an entire talk about all this kind of embodied study stuff. But this behavior of uh, understanding one another, of approaching one another and s attempting to soothe the um, difficult feelings that other people have is hardwired into us. Like I used to get really mad at hardwired because hardwired seemed like a word that people were always using about like unchangeable negative behaviors. Like, um, well, we're hardwired to do this, you know. There was like a hardness about the wired. <laughs> But um, actually, we are wired uh, to take care of each other and to um, need each other, like beginning with the great vulnerability that we have as babies, that we're tremendously interactive beings. Sharon speaks extremely touchingly about the study where the little toddlers try to help the researcher. You know, they drop, the researcher drops something on the floor and the little, little person comes up and tries to give it back to them. You know, it's like before they really know anything, like they see that this person might want their pen back or something like that. So the, just the tenderness of these little beings, uh, bringing your pen back. And people who have children know kind of what this like help mommy kind of stuff. So it's recommended to begin to recognize this very ordinary goodness in ourselves and others. And Gina spoke a little bit about mudita practice last night. And to develop an appreciation for the so many ways in which we are non-harming in any given day. When living in South America, sometimes I would go in and just see, kind of see one of my friends and sort of start right in on whatever we were supposed to do. And they would start to, they would say, no, buenos dias, they would say like, okay, buenos dias, and then buenos dias, and then they say, all right now, okay, you know, but it was like, let's stop and acknowledge each other, you know, and after that, we'll proceed with whatever business we have to do. So there was a kind of wholeness in that encounter that is part of this civilized human behavior. <laughs> Not so um, what they would call atropellado, crashing through things. 
So as we look in this way, we might start to also see the compassion of objects like the chairs that take our weight and the cushions that uh, keep us from hitting the floor and the walls that keep the wind out that are partly creations of human minds, um, our ingenuity. Looking for the good in people and things does not make us stupid or namby-pamby. It kind of makes us happy and that you can use your intelligence this way and start to be more discerning. There are ways in which we really overlook and also don't understand um, how to do well for ourselves, like this appreciation of one another is one, this inclusion of one another in our minds, and this um, working with and acting on this innate sense of generosity. The researchers have discovered that they ask people what would, be, what would make you happier to spend $20 on yourself or give it away. People believe that they'd rather spend it on themselves, but when they give it away, by measurement, they're happier. Like when they put the wire on their head, they actually are happier by giving it away, <laughs> giving it to someone else. Someone whose name I won't repeat said, why don't you say $10,000? <laughs> but um, giving makes us happy. That's uh, a pretty f firmly uh, established fact now. So with this metta practice and these types of recognitions and understandings of our innate goodness as human beings, it's as if uh, with our training and our repetition of the phrases, it's, you can feel often as if you're kind of cutting a groove in your mind. And this is, this is a fact. This is partly how uh, it becomes so transforming, cutting or clearing a path through your nervous system, or through the way that your brain is wired together and through different kinds of associations that you have with other people, with yourself. It's similar when the, after the Buddha was enlightened, he said um, he rediscovered an ancient path that was partially overgrown and he followed that path. And we are kind of doing that too within ourselves. So all of this um, preamble is to try to feel some safety about the goodness uh, that's inside us already, that we don't need to fabricate it all, that we need to turn toward it and enact it more, and then it will grow. There's another part of this metta practice and how it works, which involves the imagination. And some of you were asking about that today in your interviews. And th there's a way that I had to think a little bit hard about this in my own practice, where it felt sort of imaginary and not very real. Um, the key phrase, may I? Um, and what does that mean? And how does that operate? And certainly what I'm saying, any of what I'm saying here is kind of a suggestion or a description of some things that I discovered. And each of you uh, has discovered things of your own. So it's only kind of suggestive. But I think that this uh, hortatory subjunctive, there's a way that it opens up a space for possibility in our minds. Um, and it might often seem like kind of counterfactual, like, well, I'm not happy, so why should I say, may I be happy, you know? Um, the mind sometimes kind of says, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Which is why um, there's a little faith in continuing to say the phrases. But I'd also just like to say that this imagining and wishing uh, may have a healing function may allow a sense of enhanced well-being to uh, bring it into a space where we can actually contemplate it, where we can actually think that it might come true in us. And even with this may I, it's kind of making it in a space of uncertainty, but in an imaginary way, this happiness comes into our mind, um, cuts a path. 
And sometimes when we just listen carefully to the words, the meaning is already in the words, so may I be happy, and you already feel a little bit happy just by saying it, um, because you're listening. You're listening to yourself, talk to yourself. You feel it a little, which was a lot of the beginning of my meta practice felt very fake and kind of thin and bizarre. I used to have to um, imagine that there was a little antenna far above my head from which it wasn't really inside me. It was kind of coming from up here. And <laughs> over the years, it's kind of come down. <laughs> and now it seems to come from like more or less where the rest of me is. <laughs> It was like a radio tower before. Um, but I also want to say how this wandering and imagining mind um, is part of the coming out of the billion-year-old carbon place also. It's part of something cosmic. It's not away from the universe. Um, because it sort of sees the universe, it might feel itself to be a part. It sees and reflects. But it, too, is part of our beauty as a being, this uh, imagining mind is how we pass information from generation to generation. It's one of the many ways that we interact. It's how we put things together, uh, how we receive things. You know, it's, uh, in Zen they say, don't look at the finger, look at the moon. But if so, nobody points at the moon, how are you ever going to see? You know, like if you weren't inclined to look at the moon, you need the finger. So um, I believe in the finger. <laughs> <laughs> And there's also that way that our mind is necessary, that um, it's how we imagine and see that other people are just as important to themselves as we are to ourselves. I think that if we didn't have this kind of fantasizing mind, we'd never be able to know that. Um, so don't push it away too quickly when uh, your mind starts bringing you all this odd stuff that it does. This is another way that metta uh, does operate, though, that as you find yourself enmeshed in this and that distraction and you come back, the flash of wisdom of recognizing a thought or a distraction as such, the uh, panya, the uh, you know, deep insight, is exactly the same as it is in vipassana practice. And so I see some of you nodding. The uh, executive director here, uh, Bob, was telling me about his dog today. He said that Milo is really gets very deeply absorbed in one of those posts on the way from the um, parking lot. And, Bob will call him and call him, and he finally has to call his name pretty loudly, and the dog lifts his head with the exact same thing, like, oh, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be with you. It's the exact same awakening, he says, <laughs> as when our mind is, like, inside of something and comes out, and he sees that inside. I'm supposed to be doing this. <laughs> so maybe dogs are enlightened, um, or they may be enlightened. So another way that metta operates is that it kind of, uh, I said this before, how it kind of evokes and brings forth our entire kind of emotional world and our history and, you know, how we see ourselves, how we see other beings. These, um, as we're working through um, the other people, there's these constellations of beings around us, like our group of benefactors and the dear friend and the neutral person and stuff, and we start to see how we originally sort of unconsciously related to ourselves and those people, and then turn on the meta light, and we're like, ah, at first, and then gradually begin to sort of bring them in, um, bring them into our heart, bring them into our consideration through this imaginary process. We start to see also that these images are somehow part of us, uh, part of our quality of mind, or part of our quality of life. As we learn about our relational habits, um, remembering the truth of suffering and the ending of suffering, 
So as we imagine and connect with other people, it's really um, not a small investment in transforming our relationship with other people, other beings. Unselfishly being willing to give happiness to someone else. Kind of mentally soothing them, going along with that instinct I was saying before, to approach and soothe. We're doing that in our minds. Like, how would it be that we wouldn't begin to do that more in our life? It just seems impossible that it's just, it's not an isolated practice. A Japanese study says, made in 2001, past experiments have found that when people are induced to experience positive emotions, they report wider arrays of action urges relative to those induced to experience either neutral or negative emotions. This is really gobbledygook, right? But meaning that when we feel happy and connected, we're much more active in uh, approaching other people and trying to induce other people to, in, to feel this. We propose that subjective happiness similarly plays an important role in widening kind people's repertoires of kind thoughts and behaviors, which may in turn further increase their subjective happiness. <laughs> Past experiments have found that when people are induced, <laughs> <laughs> but there's science about this, right? So science is our religion in, in a way, so it's always good to find that. Um, I mean, you can also say that our, these kinds of practices and interests are moving through the culture in a way that is maybe counter to some of the angry uh, things that we see so much around us. But I might also say that as we may find ourselves changing um, in many ways as a result of this practice. When we leave, you'll see, um, you don't know, we don't know yet. But also that the sort of mystical Asian model seems true, that often there are many little mysteries in metta where things happen that just are very difficult to explain unless you sort of say that metta does have a force that's beyond what's reasonable to expect. So one time I went to San Francisco, I had been doing a lot of metta and I met uh, there, my little niece, whose name is Alma, and her friend. Um, and going around the corner, I went to buy some like aspirin or something at the drugstore, and I saw that these huge stuffed animals were on sale for ten dollars. There were like these. There was a snow leopard, a white and gray one, and a jaguar. So wow, ten dollars! I thought this would be great. I'll just give it to them, but I don't know if they'll like it or something. And I took them home. And these girls, like, they shrieked and freaked out because each of their favorite stuffed animal had been exactly the same thing in a smaller version. So, and I hadn't even known about it. It was just sort of, you know, there's a, there's a thing in Zen what they call two arrows meeting in midair. It was unbelievable. It was like, well, there was a rightness. <laughs> um, Stuff like that. I mean, you can make something out of them, or you can say that, you know, the world is so complicated that amazing coincidences have to happen once in a while. But many things have happened to me with my um, difficult person in my neighborhood and my neutral person have both become my friends, and I never really said anything to them. It just started to happen. People that walk their dog outside my house and the guy who uh, does the car inspections. Now, <laughs> now we're friends. <laughs> One was a neutral. The, the one with a white dog that attacked my puppy was someone I didn't like, and now she actually approached me. We've had conversations with friends. It's pretty wild. Um, and that could be their wisdom coming up, not just because, like, my meta is so great or anything like that, you know? 
Okay, so may you be happy opens us and reminds us that the possibilities are beyond what our narrow vision might be. Um, yeah. But I also want to say that um, there's times when that sense of reality might set in and moving now a little bit from the, um, from the sense of safety phrase to the happy phrase. Uh, and when we start to say, may you be happy, and your mind kind of goes, yeah, right, and stops and says, but that person isn't happy. How are they ever going to be happy? Or um, something like that. That is a time when metta might induce us to uh, examine and deepen what our sense of happiness might be. And some of us have worked through this too, to sort of get from the Hallmark card and kind of artificial sense of what it is to be happy to what might it be to be a really genuine human being and a happy human being that includes some degree of meaning, that includes some degree of understanding the way things really are. So to reframe our concept of what we're wishing, it doesn't mean that you need necessarily always to have a new phrase. But in the happiness studies um, at Harvard, the first thing that's required for um, how to be happy is to be able to admit uh, when you're in pain. That's number one. And I think we're learning that a little bit here. That when those things come up inside us, that metta belongs still with us. That we don't just push on and say, like, I'm going to do it my way and get to happiness. That you have to sort of, when those red lights come, that you pause and you don't keep pushing, but you stay where you are and you start to offer metta there. So it's more like feeling and letting be than driving on past to some kind of fabricated happiness. And what happens at this juncture to... Um, sort of try to describe it a little bit, is that we release a little bit the limiting thoughts about what happiness might be. Um, and we begin to trust the sense of kindness more, more than those ideas. And we find that the kindness itself uh, is a form of happiness or brings a form of happiness. It doesn't mean that our hearts will never break again. Um, it doesn't mean that... Uh, We'll always we'll get it right finally that we'll be immune from all sadness, from all pain. Not at all. Um, I think all of our hearts here have been broken many times. Uh, and they may break again. But meeting ourselves again and again with metta, our capacity grows, our forgiveness and our tolerance and our nonviolence and our courage, these things all grow. And um, much just about to where the talk should be done with a little bit more to go. Martin Luther King said, there's something of a civil war going on within all of our lives. There is a south of our soul revolting against the north of our soul. There's something within all of us that causes us to cry out with Ovid, the Latin poet, I see and approve of the better things of life but the evil things I do. <laughs> within the best of us, there is some evil. And within the worst of us, there is some good. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude toward individuals. The person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation that hates you most has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has good in it. When you come to the point that you look in the face of every person and see deep down within them what religion might call the image of God, you begin to love people in spite of it.
as you seek to hate people, find the center of goodness. Place your attention there, and you will discover a new attitude. It is not sentimental. It is not emotional. It is creative, understanding, goodwill for all. When you rise to the level of love, the level of its great beauty and power, you will seek not to defeat individuals, only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but the system you will seek to defeat. So I think he was kind of an enlightened person, and you might say that the system, uh, if you wanted to speak of it in Buddhist terms, is this samsaric system, this system of mind, the system of separation that holds all of us in thrall. So I would like to say that um, let's all please defeat this sense of separation. So I'm going to go on a little bit with your permission for about five more minutes, um, bringing the talk to a full hour, which is a little long. Sorry. This may you be happy refers to the central point of sensitivity in our own mind, this part of us that knows that knows both happiness and unhappiness, that knows our subjectivity and that is tender within us. You could call it the heart or you could call it the mind. You could say it's, this is the universe that knows itself through us, this spot that can be so raw, that can be so open, this spot that could be called love itself. So the be healthy phrase is a little bit, you know, it's kind of at this point an afterthought, but to remember to let the metta go through your body and to be with metta to the body in its own nature. Um, We know now that we've discussed how emotions run through the body, that um, having this loving kindness and sweetness and acceptance moving through the body is going to be profoundly healing. It's the basis of traditional Tibetan medicine and healing systems. Um, And yet, our body has its nature, it's getting old. Uh, The Buddha said near the end of his life that he felt like his body was held together with straps. And the only time he ever felt physical release was when he entered the profound absorptions of concentration and he wasn't really aware of his body anymore at all. But any time he was in his normal consciousness, he felt some irritability in his uh, body. So let's have tenderness for our bodies, uh, letting them be, letting them follow their nature, independent of our wishes, independent of our reactions, to see the beauty in this also, the beauty in impermanence, having the nature to grow old, as even the Buddha's body did. That could be a teaching for us too, remembering the carbon in our bones. One time, um, my dog was hit by a car And for a brief period, his tail and his hindquarters were paralyzed or partially paralyzed, and he was having some problems uh, pooping. And I uh, first observed his own, like, incredible courage and stoicism and how actually, in a certain way, if you have to be ill, it's nice to be a dog because they don't, like, really worry too much. They just kind of try to get it done, you know, and deal with what's happening. So he sort of taught himself how to poop again and stuff, and I went through a lot of different medical veterinary uh, things, uh, to the extent that I thought of writing an article about the whole problem of animals, euthanasia, where the lines are drawn, and discovering that many of the veterinarians who said, you might not want to live with a dog that has this problem, 
uh, we're living with incredible numbers of completely incontinent cats and dogs and stuff in their houses. And I was saying, like, why are you telling me that? And they said, well, we don't want you to feel that it's your responsibility. You know, it's like as if they felt they were taking the responsibility for my peace of mind. But I, so my article was going to be called Slave to a Dog's Ass. And, um, <laughs> when I decided that I wasn't going to euthanize this pet and stuff, and I was just going to live with whatever happened. And gradually, actually, slowly, he recovered. But um, this is one of the sort of miracles of, of, uh, of metta, I felt. Like one time, it was a kind of mystical thing, like strange mystical experiences and unexpected mystical experiences. I was walking him, and I was kind of looking at his rear end and having all my thoughts about it that were very much focused on the whole thing. And it was like suddenly the pain of this whole thing and the compassion of the whole situation and the, the holisticness, it was as if my mind kind of went in through the back end of the dog. And I felt that all of the suffering was actually the compassion, that all of this feeling of um, difficulty was a way that the universe was expressing its own compassion to itself. And um, it was really a very strange and beautiful moment. Um, where it was like kind of all right, it was all right, in a much, much greater sense of a sense of totality. Anyway, there's an odd story. (laughs) (laughs) So lastly, in conclusion, may we all find ease within the way things actually are. May we see with the eyes of kindness and compassion and together bring about a more compassionate world. As Helen, recognizing, um, Helen Keller said, the most beautiful things in this world cannot be seen or even touched, but they can be felt with the heart. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.